especially now with so much great content that people can get right in their homes. And with, you know, coming back from the pandemic, the bigger, better show we can put on in a theater, the better. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the magic that we've got to get back to. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. This is our 400th episode of The Director's Cut, and we wanted to take a moment to thank the many directors and director's team members who have participated in our conversation series over the years. We also want to thank you, our listeners, for continuing to tune in to our show and support our members' work, whether for the first or the 400th time. In this episode, Audiences are returned to the fantastic world of Pandora in director James Cameron's epic science fiction film, Avatar, The Way of Water. The long-awaited sequel to Cameron's DGA Award-nominated feature, Avatar, The Way of Water is set a decade after the events of the first film and follows human-turned-Navi Jake Sully, who must find a safe haven for his family when old foes return to ravage their beautiful home and destroy their harmonious way of life. In addition to both Avatar films, Cameron's extensive directorial credits include the feature films The Terminator, Aliens, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, and True Lies, as well as the documentaries Secrets of the Whales and Game Changers. Cameron's 1997 film Titanic earned him the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Feature Film. Following a screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Cameron spoke with director Guillermo del Toro about filming Avatar The Way of Water. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Well, uh, this is the second time, but the first time. I see it because I hadn't seen it in 3D. Exactly, yeah. And with all the effects finished. It's a staggering. I mean, I said it before on, on one of the... <laughs> outlets of this world, but I'll say it again, seeing it reminds me of how long has it been since we saw a movie. A movie, a movie. You know? I think... uh, It's been a dry patch. It's been a dry patch, I think. The difference uh, is uh, we are are now getting uh, previous rendered, so we get motion, but not emotion. We don't get scope, we get effects. There is a thing... This movie is, by the way, <laughs> a summation of all your movies. <laughs> a little Titanic in there, yeah. <laughs> in case you didn't notice. Yeah, I, I, I'll say one anecdote, and I have many questions, but right when Jim and I have been friends for 32 years, yeah. really good friends, he's my brother, and he's uh, been vital in my life and everything, and I used to stay at his house. <laughs> When I did, when I didn't have anywhere, no money. Yeah, you just came to to the U.S. for the first time with Kronos. Yes, Kronos. And uh, I was making uh, Terminator Two. Yeah. At the time, yeah, and we just yeah. hit it off. I, so you, full disclosure, we've been pals. So all the nice all things the, he's saying. <laughs> yes, but uh, I remember when he finished True Lies, he said, "You know, I'm looking for something small to do," and <laughs> and I 
I, I'm looking for something intimate. And I said, I gave him The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, Carson McCullough. Well, you should read this. And he says, I want to do a simple love story, which turned into Titanic. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's my version of small. It's small. It's intimate. Right? And I think you've been chasing a family story yeah. way from the beginning. And this is a movie that we don't get very often. And I'll say, I'll say why, because of course there is precision, pulse, spectacle, science fiction, but it's very rare somebody tackles an adventure movie, you know, which is a different scope of film. And it seeks to reassert sort of the basic values. And this is, I think, extremely heartfelt for you, this film. Well, it is. And the, and the family theme, I was teasing around it, obviously, with, with uh, Terminator, uh, you know, Terminator 2, uh, father-son, aliens, mother-daughter, you know, but it, it wasn't from a place of experience. Mm -hmm. But, you know, now where I am in my life, I've got five kids, four of them out the door, one just about to get the final boot in the butt. But, um, you know, they always come back. So um, <laughs> At 55, I called my mom. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, what struck me kind of in post, I guess I hadn't thought of it that much before, was that I'd been on both sides of the equation. I'd been, I'd been the, the young kind of, you know, troubled or anxious teen that, that, you know, got beat up and nobody understood because I was artistic and my dad was an engineer. He was authoritarian. You know what I mean? So I was on that side of the equation and then I became, the kind of disciplinarian dad that was a director and expected the kids to, you know, do exactly what they were told. They finally rebelled and we got it all sorted out, uh, you know, after the revolution. But, you know, it gave me a lot of perspective on the whole, on what the whole parent-child dynamic is, you know, and the tensions there, tensions between sons and fathers and all that. I'm not saying I lived anything, you know, that dramatic, but enough to be able to write from some, some kind of authority. And recognize ourselves in there. Yeah. You know, yeah. but uh, there's always been something, there's a few really strong peculiarities that you have been faithful to from the beginning. Number one, in these large scope adventures, you always choose a side that is not the status quo. You don't support the structure, the, the government, the institutions. You go with the outsiders, yeah. the rebels. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe that comes from from sort of coming of age mentally in the late 60s, early 70s, which was a very chaotic time. Actually reminds me a lot of what's happening right now. There was so much uncertainty in the world, um, you know, Cold War, nuclear threat, civil rights, you know, rioting in the streets over, over war and, you know, women's rights. I mean, it was a very chaotic time. It, it feels a lot like that now. You know, so really thinking of it from an anti-authoritarian perspective, that's just kind of, uh, I think, how I'm wired from that, from that period. But even, even more deeply for me, you, uh, you know, you have Terminator and the hero is a waitress. You have uh, aliens and the uh, soldiers come in full of bravado, arrogance, weapons, and get taken out and the hero is a mother figure. The unexpected woman. one. Yes. The yeah, unexpected the one. one that the other people sort of, you know, don't recognize. And I think Jake Sully is completely underestimated by, by you know, the powers that be that just think they can steamroll in. Yeah, it's the everyman, everyman hero, uh, you know, but it can't be a simple everyman. There's always got to be some kind of a swerve mm -hmm. on it or every woman. 
And I think that also uh, there are two other things that are remarkable for me. The grit of the way you stage and the way you uh, lay out action, which is extraordinarily clear, but it has more grit. It's not, it's not just, uh, it's not a, an action movie layout. It's, it, it always has grit and reality. Well, uh, if you like it, then I like it. <laughs> <laughs> but I, rem I, remember, I remember very clearly on Terminator 2, where you did an analysis of the way you did the real projection, and you said, I include flares because mistakes are extremely important. Uh, yeah, you want to, I mean, I always like a bit of a verite feel in the action and a bit of a loose camera, and I really like hand-holding during action just to get that, that kind of roughness and that instinctiveness. I like the feeling before a take where I put the camera on my shoulder and I, I just kind of go blank. I don't really know what I'm going to do. And I, and I like that, that moment of blankness. And then, you know, uh, some fool says action and then all of a sudden people are moving. And, and I just feel like I'm, I'm just kind of, I'm kind of tracking it. I'm just, I'm feeling it instinctively and I really like that. Um, and then, so then in the virtual production, try to do the same thing. The only problem is with the latency of the, of the, the, uh, the playback, everything's at half speed. So it's taken the first film and this one to figure out how to get that kind of instinctive move where you kind of swerve with the action, but then you, you kind of overshoot and then you recorrect and all that, but do it at half speed. So it's like learning to do the mistakes, you know, kind of like in the muscle memory in yeah. a way. But that, that is a part of the, I mean, n nobody prepares as much as you do. And I think there's a moment where you have to also use the instinct and that's the moment. Yeah, I like, I like, yeah, exactly. Because there's so much preparation that goes to every moment of life. To dissect life. the moment. Right? Exactly. But then there's something really lovely about just having a moment that's pure creation. And I love that with the actors, obviously. And on a film like this with so much virtual production, uh, in this particular film, we did uh, a year and a half of capture with the actors in advance. Um, and that was all of, you know, Sigourney's work and Sam and Zoe and, and all that before we got to live action. The live action was actually the tail of the dog. Mm -hmm. You know, the main, the main part of it was the, was the performance capture. And so we do that all up front. So, you know, people ask me, and I think it's a perfectly valid question. How do you balance the humanistic, emotional side of it with all the, the layers and layers of technology? And it, it occurred to me only recently that it's just lucky the way we do it is that I really just get to work with the actors for like a year and a half. And I'm, we completely uncouple the photographic process and we push it later, like all the lighting and the camera moves and the lens selection and all that stuff, because we're not doing photography, we're doing capture. So it's a really pure, it's almost like you're just in rehearsal for a year and a half. And then you're, and then you're done. <laughs> and you've rehearsed. The rehearsal is the take, you know, which is which is kind of amazing. I remember um, the first time I heard you talking about Avatar was the early nineties. Uh, yeah, that's right. It was ninety five. Ninety five. Yeah, ninety five. And uh, to get to the first one was such an incredible push of technology, story, solving a lot of uh, the things that you needed as a sort of ground floor to get in, and then this one. <laughs> Where you, every, most everything you built, you either improved or had to rebuild. 
What we did was the second we finished the first Avatar, we knew it was going to be a, a big hit by that point. So I'm saying, like over the Christmas holidays um, in uh, 2010, we just asked the studios, 20th Century Fox, to keep everybody on salary for another two months. And, and I, they all just wanted to go on vacation. But I said, guys, I want you to write up everything that we did and how we can do it better next time and what the tools are that we need. Now, I hadn't really made a decision whether to, to do a sequel or not. I wound up deciding to make three and then it became four. <laughs> you know, kind of metastasized on us. But um, I wanted, while it was fresh in their minds, like how do we do this better? You know, before everybody scatters to the winds and goes off salary, how do we do this better? And they wrote up, I don't know, hundreds of pages of like white papers, department by department, on the tools we needed. And then when we regathered a, a couple of years later after I was done, you know, doing expeditions and that sort of thing and doing, you know, indigenous rights stuff and traveling around the world, when we got serious, which was in 2013, we handed all that to Weta Digital and to our own in-house developers said, these are the tools we got to create. we got to future-proof ourselves for not just one more movie, but three. At the time, we thought it was three. It's, uh, it's amazing the, the rhythm you have on the movie. It, it goes faster than most hour-and-a-half movies I've seen lately. Uh, the planning of it, you, you compacted uh, or mixed two screenplays that were originally, they, they were part of two and three, and you mixed them together to... Yeah, it was a weird process. We could never crack the code on the first act. There was just too much backstory to tell. There were too many new characters to introduce. And there were too many events that got us to the reef. Because we always thought we got to get to the reef. That's the end of Act One. That's the start of Act Two, the new world. You know, the, the vistas, the things you haven't seen before. Um, and that was just such a critical, pivotal moment. And I, we, I just couldn't solve it. We just kept writing over and over, draft after draft. And then finally I said, why don't we just split it into two movies and we'll take this major thing that's supposed to happen in Act One, put it in Act One of the next one. And it was like in one day, it just all fell into place. And, you know, you'll have to see three to, uh, to see what I'm talking about, but it, but it works a treat. So, yeah, it was, and, and by the way, I was staring at this thing for like a year and you can't call the lightning down. You just have to one day, it's just suddenly it just pops into your head, you know. And the other, the, the other writers were struggling with it as well. And then when, we, when I relayed it out, they were like, oh, yeah, we can do this. It's amazing. Some of the things, obviously, the improvement, the size of the sandbox you created is staggering. Because if the first one was staggering, this is now you're going planetary. Uh, there is uh, there's beauty in the rigs. That I, I, I saw a completely new system rigging the neck and the... And the throat and the, that, yeah. that was extraordinary. That's a really interesting thing. One of the things we discovered is that when you capture facial performance, you do it with a camera right here, and it doesn't miss anything. It's two two little HD cameras shooting in stereo, but the neck, uh, the face doesn't end at the jawline like you think it does. It ends down here by the Mine clavicles. <laughs> <laughs> Keeps going. It keeps going. <laughs> right. Three chins uh, down. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> a moment, please. I'm not touching that with a fork. Okay. Um, but what I meant was that the emotion 
and the, the, the sort of the dynamic energy of the face actually progresses all the way down to the upper chest because there's so many tendons and throat movement and tendons and muscles that fire in the neck and you're not really aware of it until you really start breaking down and studying how people emote. Mm-hmm. And so we had to start accounting for that and we had to start building that into our basic algorithms, you know, because the whole idea was to get the humans out of the loop, to get the animators out of the way of the actors so that there's almost a direct conduit between what the actor did and the finished the finished product, the solve that came through that we could see in our, in our character. Because the character is not the actor. The character's faces are wider, their eyes are four times bigger volumetrically. They have ears in a different place. They have tails. The character's different. So the idea is to get the essence of the actor, but I don't mean just the essence in a vague way. I mean, I mean everything, you know, every kind of molecule of what they did into that character without any human mediation that would deviate from what the actor did. Mm-hmm. And that was our kind of holy grail. That was our, that was our mantra. And part of that was solving, solving the, neck. the neck, yeah. Hands and mouth also incredible improvement, et cetera, et cetera, but all for expression. By the way, Sigourney Weaver kills it. Yeah, she It's crushes fantastic. it. And the, the problem with Sigourney was, was nor, what we, like with the young characters, like uh, Locke, who was a 15, 14, 15-year-old actor when he captured it, um, he just boomed right through directly. Like the process worked perfectly. But with Sigourney, because she was 69, we had to go from Sigourney at 69 to Sigourney at 14. Then from Sigourney at 14 to the character. So it was a two-step process. And that threw us for a while, but we finally figured it out. We just did a forensic deep dive to find every picture we could find of her from when she was a kid. And any bits of family video. And even some of the really tight photography that Ridley Scott had done in Alien was really helpful. But once we had Sigour- a young Sigourney, then we could, we could take that and transfer that to the character. But, you know, in terms of, of her work... You know, we talked about it ahead of time, of course, and she just went into her prep mode as she does. And she just uh, did some workshopping with, uh, with young girls, uh, you know, 13, 14, 15 years old, and just really keenly observed them and the cadence of their speech and the pitching of their voices and some of their physical mannerisms and so on. And let that sort of take her back. She can describe this better than I can, but, but she's described it to me take her back to her awkward teenage years. And she really related to the character because she's sometimes she's kind of depressed and anxious and, and she's feeling that angst that a lot of us go through, and probably most people go through as teenagers, and that's what attracted her to the character, you know. And, but also the, the joyfulness, you know. She really has an ecstatic relationship with nature that's beyond a normal not V. Yes. And, uh, and that's going somewhere. That's all going somewhere very important across the, across the story, and, and we knew that as well. But and she said, but I'm not going to do a voice. I'm just, I'm just going to unleash Kiri, and whatever comes out, comes out. I'm not going to, you know, kind of top down, try to manifest a voice or something. And, of course, she did a voice, but she didn't even know she was doing it. She didn't realize she was doing it until she came back to Loop. And I said, Sig, you sound like you. She said, well, Yeah. And I mean, no, you don't sound like Kiri. You sound like you. So we wound up using the production. Wow. Now, the, that is one of the things that is extremely moving. Across the board, not only of your films, but your life, there is, uh, 
of course, it's incredibly, it's a staggering to mount a movie like this. There is that myth that, oh, well, there's money. You can give me all the money in the world, say, can you stage a third act or we'll kill you and I'll start measuring coffins, <laughs> no matter what, because it's, it's a staggering what you do, the rhythm, the way you lay it out. But the most urgent thing in all your movies and your life is the, the need to reconnect with the basics. Right. Not only yeah. family, emotion, life, and earth. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's the there's the connection with the natural world, and we feel that through Kyrie and I think through Loak more than we do Jake and Neytiri's mm -hmm. characters. Neytiri was the the kind of the interpreter of that for Jake in the first movie, but she stepped into a different role now. She's the primal mother in this, and it is primal. It's absolutely. It's absolutely primal with her and, and with Jake. You just, you feel that, that force in them, that their children are so much more important to them that, that they, than they are. And I think, you know, I, I've, I've thanked Sam and Zoe for having the thoroughness of preparation to actually go out and have three kids each. I thought that was really above and beyond. <laughs> it's beyond method. Yeah. The birth control method. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Now, in order to capture the action, the rigs, the rigging, the, the way you had to prepare the physicality of it, that you have to use, uh, like when I visited you, and, uh, in, Man in Manhattan Beach. You, you saw the tank, I think. Yes. Yeah. Right. But what about the rigs? To ride them in and out of the water. Oh, the creatures, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, well, we did solve water capture, underwater capture, and, and really critically what we call the interface through the surface, right? Because yes. it was really, I'm sure most people here know how performance capture works, how you're, you're in a volume and so on with marker suit and facial performance. But we had to generate two volumes, one that was based on infrared cameras above water and ultraviolet cameras below water. And then the system had to be, the software had to be written to integrate those two volumes together in real time, you know, or with only, you know, milliseconds of latency. And so it was incredibly, you know, challenging technically. But then now, okay, so now we got this water and we can put people in it. Now we got to train the people. So you got a bunch of actors. They weren't cast because they were champion free divers, <laughs> you know, so we had to teach them. So we got champion free divers to teach them how to hold their breath. And I think when Sigourney started, she could hold her breath for about, you know, 30 seconds or something like that. And she eventually wound up going over six minutes. Kate Winslet wound up going over seven minutes. The other, the, even the, the kids were up in the five, six minute category because it's all mental, right? And actors love anything that they can latch on to for preparation for their, for their characters and that kind of exercise, that kind of Zen mental exercise where you actually control your physiology and slow your heart rate down and all this other stuff. It was like, this is great. This is, this is like boot camp for the characters. They loved it. And we took them in the ocean, uh, in Hawaii and, and let them practice their free diving and scuba diving, um, on, you know, real reef ecosystem so that they could remember that, that beauty and that transport that they felt in that moment and bring it back into our austere tank mm -hmm. environment. I think that made a difference. But you were asking about the creatures. So we built sort of creature mock-ups that were powered by um, uh, water jet propulsion, and they could literally fly out of the water, scream along at like 20 miles an hour, and dive back in. And the first few times we tried it, just peeled people off, just like you see in the movie, just ripped them right off. It was hysterical. And then we had to figure out 
No, they, they enjoyed it. They said, <laughs> or so they, so they said, um, so we, we were out in the Bahamas racing around with these, with these critters trying to figure out how do you ride a creature? You're not going to ride it like a horse, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then once you figure out some cool posture that looks good and actually works, then how are you going to handle weapons? How are you going to deal with spears and things like that? So there's a lot of R and D that went into it. And then we had to teach the actors how to do it. And, you know, once again, this was just all training. It's all grist for the mill. And they really, they really enjoyed it. About uh, You'll have to ask them to see if they really <laughs> enjoyed it because they're actors, so you never really know. <laughs> About seven or eight years uh, ago, I, I saw your art, uh, the art room. Oh, yeah. And you right. had already 90% of those designs Solve or about to I get think sold. I walked you through all the way to the end of movie five. All right? the way, yeah. yeah it's all, it yeah. was all designed. Even before it was finally written, it was I all designed. I know what happens, by the way. <laughs> I won't That's, tell. It would kill me. But, but, but I'd have somebody else do it. <laughs> they would never find you. Uh, so uh, you walk me through that. And then, the, I mean, it's, we are in a place where we all plan. We are used to prep, we're used to shoot, we're used to, but this is times a hundred. When you, when you show me the, the art room, then you had to solve sets. How much was, you broke down how much was interactive with real actors. Yeah, we, we, we built a lot less than we did on the first film. Mm-hmm. And it, it really struck me if I was making Titanic now, we'd probably build about a quarter of what, mm-hmm. of what we built on that film. You got to have something to hang your hat on and for the actors and so on. But, you know, the set extensions become so natural and so easy to work with using the simulcam system. I don't expect, um, most, most folks here or, or other filmmakers to, to want to run out and do a virtual production film that's entirely performance capture necessarily. But the tools that, that we improved on the new film around simulcam, real time composite on set is such a godsend. It's just such a great tool to work with where you've got right there on the monitor is the shot, as it will appear in the movie, more or less. I mean, it's a lower resolution, obviously. But you can see the interaction of the live, the live actors and the captured characters that might have been captured a year or two years earlier. But you, you get all your scale relationships. We figured out how to do eye lines with a motorized eye line system. But it's all right there. And the, and the key to it was what Weta uh, called um, real-time depth. And the real-time depth is actually a, a, a moving depth map that allows everything to interact with each other. And we're not using blue screen or green screen. There's no alphas. It's done volumetrically. It's actually pixel-based and volumetric. So characters, you can walk right through the CG character. And you can actually put your hand into the CG character and look at it on the monitor. And that's how the puppeteers that are doing the, the eye lines are figuring out where to be. They just put their face in there until they line up. And so it's kind of centimeter accurate. It's, it's really unbelievable. And we became complete junkies to the system. We were mm-hmm. completely reliant on it. When you, every time you go, you, you take the field, every time you put all the chips you have in that number, every time we, yeah. you know, you never, never say, well, I'm going to do. <laughs> A little love story. Yeah. You end up doing everything and you're pushing here new technology, 3D, uh, the high frame rate, uh, things that you believe in in terms of the, to the liberty experience. It's total overcompensation. I'm just trying to put the best show that we can up on the screen 
Um, just, you know, it, it, it's, I'm always thinking, well, maybe the script's not strong enough. Well, we'll make the show better, you know. Um, it doesn't mean we don't work hard on the script and work hard on every every part of it, but it ju- I just feel like, especially now with with the with so much great content that people can get right in their homes, and with you know coming back from the pandemic, the bigger better show we can put on in a theater, the better. Mm-hmm. You know that's the magic that we've got to get back to. To come back to the theater. To come back yeah. to the theaters, yeah. Because I, I I've been thinking about this whole theater thing. Plenty of time to think about it. And, you know, there's this kind of myth out there that we all give lip service to that it's a communal experience. Yes, it is. But if you really want a communal experience, go to church and sing with the choir. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's everybody participating communally. I would submit that in a theater, people around you are kind of more annoying than helpful to your experience. <laughs> they're crunching their baggies and they're eating their popcorn and they're coughing and laughing and talking and all that. They're annoying, let's face it. But we love something about that experience. So what is it? So I've been thinking about this a lot. Now, I might be completely wrong, but I actually think it's the deal we make with ourselves when we decide to go. And that deal is to put down the remote and let the movie dominate us, mm-hmm. right? And, and we just open to it, right? We're not going to do it with every movie that comes along. We've got to know that it's something that's worth our time. Yeah. It's worth us showing up as a, as an audience, meeting the movie halfway. And then we allow that film to have more impact on us. So we got to kind of check it out in advance, you know, because it could be strong magic, mm-hmm. right? But that's the deal we make with ourselves. So we put the remote down. And the social contract with everybody else in the room is the movie doesn't stop. The movie doesn't stop for you. Yeah. And you're not multitasking and texting and talking, you know, getting up and ordering a pizza and pausing it. And I think it's that commitment that we make in, as an audience to having a pure experience. And then I think, yeah, now you're going to, now you might cry. Now, now you'll, you'll laugh harder. You'll feel more tense in the action than you, than you will in the home setting. It's just a different setting. That's why we need to have it. I mean, I might be completely wrong about this or that might be just a part of it. You know, but I actually, th- I actually think it's the part that people haven't talked about enough. Yes, yeah, uh, TV is a housebroken pet, and cinema is a goddamn lion in the garden. Yeah, you know, yeah, you, exactly. You, only, <laughs> you go see it through the window. Yeah, exactly. yeah, it doesn't serve you. It's dangerous, right? Yes, and I think that in in the the other thing is we talk about the size of the screen, but it's also the size of the ideas. I think that is vital. Uh, that we have people like you that are coming in and directing. And you. Well, I mean, the size of the ideas (laughs) is, but I I really love the fact that you commit to deliver this size of story, the thing that inspired you as a kid, inspired you as a young filmmaker. That's where it's coming from, right? It's that feeling that we had sitting in a theater and then just wanting wanting to do that and wanting to recreate that for somebody else that's coming along behind us and maybe inspire somebody else the way I was inspired when I saw anything from 2001 A Space Harry Odyssey Housen. to Dr. Zhivago. Actually, yeah. that, that was a movie that had a huge impact on me when I was 17. And that wasn't special effects. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it wasn't space. It wasn't science fiction. It wasn't all the things I thought I liked. 
it was just something that that blew me away. It made me feel so present. I felt the, I felt the art in every frame and every transition. You know, I felt the emotion, and it's like, wow, a movie can be that too. You know, I think Titanic. I wouldn't have done Titanic if I hadn't been blown away at seventeen by Doctor Zhivago. Everybody has their own different films. That happened to be one of the ones for me. Well, they are signaling me <laughs> uh, to finish, so I gotta say we're just getting thank you. started. I, I know that's how it feels for me. Thank you very much for another amazing movie, Jim. Uh, thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q and A. The director's cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America 